If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like or do or think about, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to ESPN's J.A. Adande about his new role leading Northwestern's sports journalism program and in the grand tradition of 30-somethings everywhere. We'll ask him, what the hell is wrong with these kids today? And with modern athletes continually starting brands, we will talk to pro lacrosse player Paul Rabel about the sports world's startup culture and his new podcast about it, Suiting Up. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And on the line with me, guys, ladies, gentlemen, Sparkle Ponies listening to this show for the first time in myriad weeks we have all four just not sports contributing voices and founders on the mic boom please Ooh, if you, hey everyone if you've been driving and you ran off the road please stop <laughs> if you were if you were working at your desk and you just quit your job out of enthusiasm please go back and beg for it back we're all here and we're ready to go Quick intros, let's do it. On the mic, our super respected, super feared, super loved PR professional of the sports world, Adam Willard. Adam, how are you? Good, and uh, super uh, revered and loved even in elevators on the way to the Peabody's. Uh, That happened. Also on the mic, Joe Reed, our producer extraordinaire. Our co-host, the 40-something-year-old millennial, as we call him. (laughs) Joe, how is Seattle? How is the fish? How is the rain? Seattle's been great. Uh, The rain is um, a thing, and uh, everybody's talking about it. Apparently, it's been a wet spring, but things have been good. I'm glad to have uh, set up the West Coast satellite office for Just Not Sports. Garris has got the East Coast. Um, You guys are in the middle, so we're doing good. Yeah, We're Joe. coast to coast, baby. We are by coast to coast. Let's take a moment yeah. for that. <laughs> Joe, uh, Joe, instead of doing Seinfeld, you really should have started with Frasier, bro. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm just getting into it, baby. That's going to be my distraction for the next, like, six months, so get ready. <laughs> Toss salad and scrambled eggs. <laughs> and in our Brooklyn Bureau, where we just came from hanging out this weekend, it is our seven-time Emmy-winning producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth. How, uh, let me ask you this. You stayed out with us until four in the morning after the Peabody's last week. Uh, were you tired the next day or being sober? Were you just like, it's cool. I only need like two hours of sleep a night now. Well, I have to tell you if you like, um, I got home at four 30 and laid down on the couch cause I didn't want to wake up any of the, either of the kids coming back to bed. And then my son woke up at five 15 so he and my wife came out to the living room because he wanted mommy. And it was actually, we had a really sweet moment at 5.15. She was like, how was your night? And I hadn't gotten to sleep yet, and I just recounted everything to her. Oh, so, nice. Uh, it was cute. It was it was sweet. And, you know, I 
I don't know. That was a that was a nice way to end that night. I will say that. Yeah, and, we're we're not gonna. Yeah, no, we're all still. We're all still recovering, I would say yes. that. Uh, we're, we're not going to dwell on this, guys. Yeah. Uh, just to give the listeners some context, uh, we were part of, uh, we created a, a program last year with our friends at One Tree Forest Films about um, the harassment of women in sports. It was called More Than Mean. Uh, we had the great honor of winning the Peabody Award uh, and going to the ceremony this past week. Uh, Joe, you were in Seattle still uh, planning the wedding, doing a lot of work, could not make it out there. So I'll give you a quick uh, high-level summary. Uh, I was checking into my hotel and the woman uh, who was checking me in was like, what are you here for? And I'm like, oh, I'm here for the Peabody's because they were like basically next door. And she said, oh, my gosh, like, that's awesome. Uh, I heard there's going to be like a lot of like famous people there. Anyway, um, uh, are you working there or what are you doing? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So then we're in the elevator coming down from my room like two hours later. And like the people in the elevator just recognize Adam from our video. And they're like, Oh, Adam, like <laughs> congratulations, sir. And I'm like, I cannot win. I, ca- I cannot win. Uh, That's awesome. I'd like to step in here. Uh, Joe, Brad actually did win. The highlight of the night for me was watching Brad make a joke at the start of our speech. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus about Veep. I'll let him tell it. But Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tim Simons of my favorite show on television howled. That was the really? highlight of the entire thing. Yes. Yes. The joke was, uh, uh, the joke was something along the lines of, um, and Garrett's the one who said you should make a reference to Veep. Because I basically was like, I, I apologized to my mom and said, you know, I mean, we're like the first Peabody winners ever to drop three C words in four minutes. And I was like, my mom was like, oh, honey, that's like every episode of Veep. Just relax. <laughs> oh, yeah. What are you going to do? That's yeah. awesome. Anyway, I came back. Uh, and the next did. day, I, I, as I mentioned, the guys off air, I, I'm like the first Peabody winner in history to, to fly home and mow my lawn and then take my kid to a jump zone for a birthday party. And uh, uh, definitely almost fell asleep <laughs> driving the car to pull over and get like two Diet Pepsis <laughs> and pound them <laughs> for a 15 minute car trip. So. Ah, uh, enough said, Joe. We, you you were you were missed. You were sorely missed. Uh, but we will we will rendezvous soon uh, because next year's Oscars are going to be held in Seattle at the Fish Market. So it's great. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's what I heard. I um the the folks out here uh, at work were kind enough once the word had spread that we uh, that we had won. And um, the end of that week, I I didn't show you guys the picture. I'll send it to you. We can post it maybe on Twitter, but. Uh, they got me a cake and on the top is the Peabody, um, you know, sort of medallion. And then the rest Aww. of the cake is covered in like pea pods. It was kind of a little silly cake. But so I was celebrating with you guys in spirit. Oh, that's cool. I, I thought like you were going to say yeah. it was covered in the sea. Nice. It was delicious cake, but uh, I'll, I'll, it's in the mail. There's a frozen slice for each of you guys in the mail. Hey, Joe, oh, we were, Joey, can't wait. Joe, we work for the same company. I didn't get no fucking cake. <laughs> I'm just hey, saying it's different out here in Seattle man that's all I'm saying alright well hey think it, speaking of wide open it's across the, the United States as Just Not Sports is now we take the open of the show we make it wide open anything in the sports world is fair game and boys I'm going to start this week USA Today for the win friend of, friend of pod they've covered us a few times shout out Nina Mandel shout out a couple others uh they ranked all the This Is Sports Center ads today. They, they, they actually, not all. They did like their top 25 of all time. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the list is a bit like a list of the, your favorite Simpsons episodes. Like, it's incredibly impossible to get right, but it's really easy to get really wrong to anyone watching it and being like, no, this is not the right list. I'm going to give you their top five, and then I'm going to give you my top choices. You guys ready for this? Yep, go. Yeah. This is wonderful. Go ahead. Okay, their number five was the Arnold Palmer ad where he fills up his own Arnold Palmer and they just watch him, which I think oh. is a pretty genius idea. That's, that's my number one. one. Uh, that's a, I was going to say, that's definitely top five. Oh, that's not number one. I have the definitive number one. We'll get to mine in a second. Uh, number four <laughs> is, is John Clayton doing uh, the, the, the urban legend about John Clayton that he had a ponytail and he was listening to Slayer. I also think that's, a, that's, that's an amazing uh, yeah. Yeah, piece of cinema. Yep. Number three was the Global Sports Center commercials where like Kenny Mayne and Dan Patrick just do like read after read after read after read in different languages. I'm not feeling that one. I'm just saying. I don't even I don't remember re- it. I don't remember that one, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it ends with them like in sombreros. I don't know. Oh yeah. Number two uh, was like problematic. That one's a little problematic. Yeah, it's like late. It was like post Oberman. Um, yeah. Number two was the kid who they draft out of high school who gets called up too young and just like can't handle the pressure, which I think is a charming, if a little bit outdated concept. I think it was a charming one at the time. And their number one guys was the Y two K one, where they flip, they do like a Y two K test in the late nineties, and it's just like anarchy in the set, and Charlie Siner being like. Follow me to freedom and stuff. I didn't get it. I don't think that's number one. What? Huh. I don't remember that one either. All right. Here are my top seven. Ready? Yes, please. Yeah. Number seven. Ricky Fowler being colorblind. Have you ever seen this one? No. Okay. No. So the no. uh, probably go. The well, more- hold on. A the, we should hold on. There, there's a little bit of a blanket statement to be issued here. If they happened after about 2004. I probably didn't see them, with the exception of the Arnold Palmer one. So, right. <laughs> okay, so it's golf. Like the the trend du jour in golf has been like the younger generation wearing these obnoxious outfits, and so Ricky Fowler is known for wearing like all orange like pants and shirt and hat, and he walks into oh, yes. the kitchen and and he's with I don't know who it is like Van Pelt or someone, and he's like, "What's up, man?" I've been really tired these days. And the guy, he's pouring coffee, and the guy's like, well, why are you drinking decaf? And he's like, I'm not drinking decaf. And he's like, yeah, you are. That's why it's got the orange handle. And he's like, this one doesn't have an orange handle. Oh, yeah. And he Good pours one. the coffee, and then he takes the orange juice and pours it in the coffee. And he's like, this milk tastes <laughs> terrible. And he's like, are you colorblind? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a genius. It's a really genius really idea. Great. Okay, number six is the high school kid. I think that's really great. I also think sports centers at their best when they either capture something really definitively bizarre about the personality or something definitively honest about the culture of sports. And I think that one was really honest about like, hey, high school kids going pro, big trend. Like, we're going to talk about it. Number five is a sports center commercial I cannot find on YouTube. And I tried. It's one of the very first ones they did. It's about an intern or a young guy working with Craig Kilborn. And he's like, I get my dream to like work with Craig Kilborn and it shows him like running all the way to the set and handing him like copy on the fly and Kilborn just crumples it up and throws it back in his face. And he's like, nope. And he's just being a total dick. And I think it's like nothing to find who Craig Kilborn was as a sports center anchor. Besides that four was uh, John Clayton. Three was the Manning brothers touring the facility with their dad, which I still think is as, as a good, a, 
satire on the life of the Mannings as anything could be. Uh, the famous butt kick. Yeah, the leg whip butt kick is an amazing moment. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this. Bill Simmons, Peyton Manning's always going to be higher than Tom Brady on my all-time QBs list because he's got way better leg action than I'm sure Tom would with a butt kick. And then, oh, to, I'm just, Gareth, I'm kidding. I know you work for the Patriots. Get over it. It's, it's fine. I also, well, Peyton Manning's a part of my... Uh, my just uh, my wide open today. So okay. it's it's oh. good you said that. That's what we call a tease in the biz, guys. Uh, number two, Alexi Lalas and Keith Olbermann, where Keith Olbermann shatters his his uh his guitar uh Animal House style. Alex, Alexi Lalas, friend of show for music, by the way. And I'm not just saying this because he did say we were his favorite interview ever. And number one. Charlie Steiner traded to Melrose Place for Andrew Shue is the greatest Sports Center commercial ever. And if you don't have that in your top three, then don't even engage me in a debate about Sports Center commercials. Mic drop out. <laughs> Damn. Right. Wait, what was, what right. was that? Describe I, I'm it. just saying this. I mean that as sincerely as when I say if you want to talk yeah, best I don't fr- think any, if you want to talk best Friday the thirteenth. If you want to talk best Friday the thirteenth, and you say if you don't say four, six, or or one slash two and your top three then don't even bother with me i'm out yeah brad i think what we're saying is none of us know what the fuck you're talking about can you explain yeah that? that's a that's a safe right. assumption that Adam. is fair that is <laughs> fair yeah, all right I'm gareth gareth i towed on yours so wide open what do you want to talk about wait can i all comment right. on brad's real quick yeah 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 the two the the you didn't mention the crocodile hunter how is that not in your top five because he's he's dead r.i.p steve Irwin. Oh God! Anyways, that's I love that one. Jump, jumping on the Florida Gator. Anyways, well, I'm go, glad you Garrett, mentioned. Go, the, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Manning brothers actually, because I was as much as I might not watch ESPN, I was, I do flip through ESPN for sports news on occasion or .com, and I couldn't help but notice this article article earlier today. That just said, Butch Hanna impressed by Peyton Manning apology. And I was like, what is he apologizing for two years after he retired? And it turns out that this former umpire for the NFL uh, in his retirement was telling stories about what he remembered. And basically Peyton Manning swore at him once and he said, Peyton, you're better than that. And then Peyton Manning took it upon himself to send him a letter and then chased him down to make sure he got the letter. This happened years ago, and some rando ump is retiring now. And as I, was, as I clicked on it, first of all, I want to say that, number one, I fell for the clickbait. And that's one of the things I want to talk about here, that I, I feel stupid for that. But number two, when will, be, when will we be rid of the Peyton Manning as good guy stories because they have been going on for most of my adult life and I'm ready for these to cycle out. (laughs) Derek Jeter's number is retired. Peyton Manning is out of the NFL. Tiger Woods is terrible. Let's all move on. When's going to probably the same day that Giselle stops revealing secret details about Tom Brady and interviews she does with media, which is never. Yeah, Gareth, dude. I mean, Touché. this is just the way PR works, bro. Like Peyton Manning's gonna be in your in your life until the end of your life. 
If and 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 as we get older, it'll just become more maudlin and more nostalgic and more like, hey, he's gonna become for- Ted Williams, isn't he? Yeah, right. I mean, it, yeah. it's like the stories of Babe Ruth and Johnny Unitas and. Uh, yeah, people need and, to, for some reason, we need our sports, our sports figures to be heroes. And in the case of Peyton Manning, we really need him to be the all time best guy. It's like, it's like the same thing with like OJ Simpson and Lawrence Phillips. It's like all fawning coverage all the time. <laughs> well, here's my problem with that. And Adam, uh, you're a wrestling guy. I think either The Rock or John Cena might be the best guy. Like, if those guys want to be the best guy, I'm all for it. Peyton Manning, I'm just tired of him being the best guy. Okay. I will say my girlfriend once worked with John Cena. She's also in marketing. He showed up an hour early by himself and was ready to go. Uh, so there's yeah, there's a legendary story about John Cena for you. I love that that qualifies as legendary and working with media with athletes. Yeah, if you're an athlete and you show up early, legendary. That that is absolutely legendary. All right, Adam, yours. Uh, I don't have anything. I think uh, the Peabody's was my wide open, and uh, soon my eyes will be closed shut. All right, Joe. Joe Reed from Seattle, West Coast wide open. What is on your mind? Go. Oh my gosh! Um, uh, this is my first. Do you guys realize this is my first wide open segment? So you can probably guess that I'm super prepared and have something. Um, I'm just learning from you guys. I don't even know what this segment is. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, that's, I gotta, that's how long it's been. That's my wide open. I've been so busy with other stuff that I have totally missed. A now regular segments uh, inception on the show. So. I'm just gonna say this. I'm just gonna say this. Of all the 30 Peabody winners of this year, I'm pretty sure we're the only one where our current collaborators don't even know how our thing happens and works. <laughs> <laughs> now, early on, the listeners may know that uh, there we we had some audio issues and some growing pains. I'm excited by the fact that during this episode. My audio is probably going to be the one that has the most issues because I've been I've been out of this for so long. So I'm getting back into it. <laughs> oh, and we are glad you are. OK, well, speaking of getting into it, we are now going to go to a great interview we did with J.A. Donde. He gave us a ton of time. I mean, J.A. is very busy. We're taping this during the NBA playoffs. He's working sidelines for ESPN. He sat down and talked to us about a new phase in his professional life. He has recently reduced his workload at ESPN and taken on a new post at Northwestern University in Chicago, where he graduated in the early 1990s. He's running their sports journalism program. And we talked to him about what it was like to shift to academia, what his new job entails, and a lot more detail just about what his perspectives are on young journalism students. It's a complicated media environment. How are they teaching it? How are they following it? How's he working with faculty? How's he going to change the program? It's a pretty cool perspective on what is, by you know, by many accounts, one of the top journalism programs in the country. And then we've got a cool interview with Gareth between him and uh, pro lacrosse player Paul Rabel about his new podcast, which covers kind of entrepreneurship and how athletes succeed beyond sports, and just overall the perspectives of how athletes kind of venture into business. We've talked about this type of stuff with a number of our guests, whether it's Megan Rapinoe and her clothing line 
or other other athletes, uh, Malcolm Jenkins from the Eagles talking about his bow tie business. So stick around for both of these, and then after that, we will be back with our distractions. Stay tuned. I really want to start here. I mean, with lots of questions for you. I'm, we're so excited to see you, um, you know, uh, back at Northwestern, the work you're doing there. I, I was reading a feature about your return and the new job, and I saw you say that you were the last class at Northwestern to use typewriters as part of your journalism curriculum. Is that is that accurate? Have you confirmed that with the second source? <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Uh, that's just what we were told, but you're right. I never did confirm with anyone. Put it this way. I haven't heard from anyone who came after us that they use typewriters. Um, you know, and I, I was told, and I remember seeing them, you know, the, the uh, word processors, not even the computers, the word processors were, uh, were implemented uh, the next year. Um, and we never use them again. I can say that, you know, I, I can say that <laughs> after that, that freshman year. Um, and I was literally like the last class because it was spring of my, uh, spring quarter of my freshman year, going back to 1989, and um, and we were banging away on those typewriters in class. And then after that, it was all computerized. Well, I was in school. I started school in '97. We were the last class to use like old black screen DOS email systems. And then the next year, they finally got a web based server. I w- I want to ask you this: Have you ever thought about making modern students? use a typewriter to help them think about writing in a way where they really have to process what they're saying before they put it on the page. Have you ever reached a point where you want to dabble back in the old school way of doing things because you feel like a generation raised with technology might want to reground themselves in the fundamentals? No. And I don't think (laughs) that being on a typewriter made me any better. Um, some people like to write things out longhand. It's funny when, uh, when I work with Jay Mariotti, he used to write out his columns longhand all day. Oh, wow. Um, and then sit down and, and, and type them up. Um, I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, people, we, we just don't think that way anymore. And I don't think it's necessary. I, I actually think it's better to sometimes write in, in starts and stops and, and to, to not have your thoughts fully formulated, especially if you're writing on deadline. I find that sometimes if I, if, I can't just quite figure out the intro to my story. I'll, I'll write some stuff that I know I'm going to get to later on just to have something on the screen or I'll write a, a sort of basic, you know, introduction that, that gets across the point that I want to make. Um, and I can come back and, and embellish it a little bit later and make maybe the language a little more, um, have a little more flourish to it. But, uh, no, I don't, I don't think our, our students would be better served by, <laughs> by writing on a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> Jay Gareth here. I, I want to ask because I'm I'm more on the production side of things, but my parents were both academics, as were Brad's. And I remember when I got to the end of college, the best advice I ever got from uh, my advisor was just basically he was like, "I don't think more school is the answer for you." And he was right. And I didn't go to grad school, and I got into television, sports television, and learning on the job was the best thing for me. Now. You're running a program. How do you balance an academic program? How do you balance the need for education and schooling? Like there's a certain amount of trade school to teaching journalism or production where it's like, I'm going to teach you this, but you need to have 
you need to make it practical at some point and just go out and apply your craft. How do you balance that? How do you balance the business real world applications of an academic in an academic setting? I think you need the tools to go out and then apply them. Um, so my mm-hmm. thought is learn, apply, work, um, you know, knowledge, um, application, experience. Um, and so, you know, I, I, a lot of my success, I think, is due to my um, what I did outside of Medill at Northwestern and that writing for the Daily Northwestern internship for the L.A. Times and the Washington Post mm-hmm. while I was an undergrad. Um, but how did I succeed at those internships? That was by using the, the knowledge that I learned at Northwestern in class. Um, so there is a practical way to apply it. And I remember sitting down for my first assignment. I'm at the LA Times. All of a sudden, you know, this is the big leagues. I was just an intern, but my work was going to be appearing in the Los Angeles Times. Oh my God, what do I do? And I had a mild bit of panic and I said, okay, I'm just going to do what I was taught to do. And I found out that mm-hmm. that was sufficient. Um, so, you know, you, you can't get ready for all the real world experiences. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing they can teach you uh, in class that prepares you for standing on the sidelines, getting ready to interview Greg Popovich in the middle of the <laughs> of a game. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I that is think... a high level graduate course if it exists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually gonna gonna teach my students the secret uh, in the maybe either next class or the final class. I might save that for the final for my grad students this quarter. That that's the you know, it's the, the kind of the summary of all that I've learned in this business. Prepare for um, I've actually had a pretty good run of interviews with Greg Popovich during these sideline interviews. Um, <laughs> but 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 you're right. It, you know, so much of this business in particular is practical and not academic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it is, and people are going to hire you based on the work that you've done, not not the grades that you've earned in class or you know the tests that you've taken. Um, but but I think they work in concert, and I think um, preparing. Mm-hmm preparing our students for what to do when they're on these jobs. And, um, and I would like to actually add production component. That's one of the things I'm trying to push for is so that we, we can have some classroom training and production experience so they can gain some of that knowledge and a little bit of experience in school. Um, because in this changing landscape, I think that's where you're more likely to find jobs. Um, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, you know, the, jobs I had, like the columnist of the LA Times, you know, I, I don't know uh, how many more of those are going to be coming to fruition, but production jobs, live event is clearly where um, places like ESPN have, have uh, you know, staked their claim and the places that they're emphasizing. So um, I think that can be taught and that can be an important part of the, the, the teaching component at, at what we do at Medill. Yeah, I mean, Gareth yeah. and I both work in different parts of media, and we we both can say authoritatively it's changing so rapidly that everybody from businesses to media entities to academia are all trying to keep up with the huge shifts in both the culture around it, uh, who the personnel is, and then how media are actually structured and syndicating their content. How do you guys um, and your how do you work with the faculty to try and stay on top of trends? that are accelerating so fast that, I mean, what, what you might start out teaching in, in the fall may be completely different by spring. <laughs> uh, you're right. It, the, the pace is, is accelerating. And I, I think back to how much just my class uh, that I've taught, you know, I've taught this class in one form or another for about a dozen years, the sports commentary class. And it used to be, you know, you would kind of have a newspaper component that, you know, I abandoned a few years ago because it was 
evident that none of my students were going to go on to careers in newspapers, at least not very lengthy careers in newspapers. So, you know, teaching how to write, you know, a running game column and something that you can file mm-hmm. immediately after the game is over, um, you know, that's that's not a necessary skill anymore. Um, you know, now you you do have the luxury of, of you know, not being... Uh, not having to deal with these artificial deadlines imposed by by these printing presses and the trucks that they need to deliver newspapers. So that's changed. Um, I've increased the social media component. Um, you know, that used to not be something I would really address. Uh, now that's something I spend a lot of time on, both, uh, you know, precautions and, and ways to maximize and, and to have the most effective um, the most effective use of social media in, in order to promote yourself and promote the, the work that you're doing. Um and and it shifted. I mean, it, it's kind of shifting under our feet. And to me, the the good thing was that it it shifted in the direction that I try to emphasize. So uh, my class has been a sports commentary class. So I've I've tried to teach you know opinion based um, commentary analysis, all those things beyond the basics. You know, I think it's very important to have a background in reporting and writing and and being able to handle the journalistic basics. But what I've taught. Um, you know, just because that's kind of been my forte the last uh, 20 years has, has been commentary and analysis across multiple platforms, writing, audio, video. Um, and to me, my takeaway when I told my students after the, the landscape changing changes at, uh, at ESPN a couple of weeks ago was that look where it's oriented. It's shifting toward analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the Fox Sports One lineup, you know their studio shows are not about news and highlights. Their studio shows are about commentary, debate. Um, ESPN with what's happening with the first the midnight sports center with Scott and Pelt now at six o'clock with with Jamel and Michael Smith. Um, guess what? That's more personality driven, more analysis driven than news and highlights. So, in a way, it's kind of come the the business has come even more in my direction. Um, you know, to what I I try to teach in my class. Now that's that's what I try to teach in my specific class. Um, you know, I am trying. I do want to have well-rounded students. That's not all they can do. Um, but in in my class, um, it's actually shifted in that direction. You just mentioned your students, and that's what I want to ask about. Like, what do you learn? Like, how much do you take? You're able to impart this sort of wisdom to your students about how things are shifting towards analysis. What sort of attitudes and excitement do you see from your students about the coming generation? I am assuming that most of the fear that is in the sports industry is felt by people who have been in it, not not the kids. I'm assuming they're excited. And what do you learn from them that you can apply to your own work? Well, there's fear, too, because okay. I saw it in their eyes when we talked about this, <laughs> because they're wondering, OK, if these um High achieving people, experienced veterans, um, well sourced people can be let go. The likes of Edward or Jason Stark, Mark Stein, you know, some of the people that were let go. You just saw Seth Davis let go from Sports Illustrated. So, mm-hmm. you know, their their fear was, okay, where's there room for me? Um, you know, what assurances can I have of a long tenure of, of a lengthy career in this business? Um, and then those are all very valid concerns. Uh, if you're seeing how difficult it is at the top at ESPN, um, you know, and also for to, to maintain a, a money-making formula, you know, ESPN had the answers. Now we're shifting to to try to to keep up with the changing landscape with fewer cable users and increasing rights fees. Um, you know, that's the challenge for the people way above me is to to make money at this. You know, my challenge is 
prepare students um, to enter this this type of landscape and and uh, to give them the tools that are necessary to compete and hopefully land jobs. So there's fear, um, there's fear, apprehension, yep. all that. Um, you know, but the the counter is that the barriers to entry aren't as high as when I was coming in mm-hmm. 25 years ago, and that it's mm-hmm. much easier to get quote unquote published today. You know, that was always a big thing. How do I get my work out there? How do I get it published? Well, now anyone, you know, in the in the matter of seconds or minutes it takes you to sign up for a Twitter account or a Facebook account, you can be published. Uh, you, can, you can get your material out there. And, and now that those platforms can carry audio and video and photos as well, um, you know, it's very easy. Whatever your preferred method of, of communication is, it's very easy to get that out. So that's the benefit. The question is, how do you get paid to do so? And that's the new challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, it's funny. Kevin, Kevin Merido, who's, you know, the recent took over the undefeated and is the editor-in-chief of the undefeated, he maintains that there's never been a better time to get into journalism um, because of the things, because of the, the new opportunities that are out there that are unprecedented, that, you know, previous generations didn't have at their disposal. Um, so that's the, that's the extreme side of optimism. Um, you know, the, but I've, I've seen the, the concern from my students as well. So, uh, Jay, you know, we talk about it, like in my work, uh, I'm in my mid thirties now and, and we talk a lot about the new generation coming in and, and like in the grand tradition of, of people in their mid thirties, all we do is rip on the people in their early twenties. Oh, they don't know anything. <laughs> is, is, is that the starting, is that the starting point? Okay. Cause I thought, you know, obviously I spent a lot of my time doing that, but I'm in my <laughs> mid forties. So I, I thought it's nice to know that, okay, it's not just the generation nexus necessarily. It's maybe right behind or doing the same thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, so Look, it's easy to rip on oh, lower attention span, all that kind of stuff. Those are cliched arguments they made about our generations, too. Help me understand, like, defend this generation coming up. You're around the students, both at the undergrad and graduate level. What about them are you excited about as potential future colleagues? Like, you're getting them into your industry. Help us understand their mindset from your vantage point and what we should be looking forward to, how they can help us. I, I think the best thing for them is their comfort and ease with with the tools at their disposal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so they they, they we're, we're really coming up on a full generation now raised on social media. If you look at the length of time, you know, I mean, I've been on Twitter since 2008, I think. Um, you know, so I mean, you know, you, you've got a full generation coming up that that's had that that that's well versed in it. Um, you know that 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 can shoot something on their phone and edit it and, and add effects and, and do that very easily. I mean, for, for all the you know fatigue that we have over, over trying Jordan memes, uh, the creativity <laughs> and the work that's put in on those um, just by quote-unquote amateurs uh, is really impressive when you see some of those. <laughs> and Absolutely. Every time I'm ready to give up and to quit that crying Jordan meme, somebody comes up with something that's more creative and more expertly done. Um, you know, so so this generation coming up that can do that easily. Like I, I fully admit, I I lack the Photoshop skills or, um, you know, whatever it would take to to do an effective one. I've I've done a couple of amateurish ones that don't look very good, but um, the skills that some of these people do, um, you know, the I think their ability to to do podcasts. One of my students, um, you know, had the idea to start a podcast. You know, that's something that never would occur to. You know, me, when I was in school, obviously podcasts didn't exist, but, um, you know, he wanted to do a podcast, and I think he's very comfortable at doing so, and that's kind of become our official Medill sports podcast. 
Um, and it was just his idea. You know, it wasn't me saying, hey, you should do one of those podcast thingies. You know, it was him um, <laughs> being familiar with that medium and being comfortable with it. I don't know how much experience he had prior to that, but it, I, I think it came pretty naturally to him, and I think it will come naturally. You know, we we uh, we can do things that, that we're familiar with, and, and, you know, people, I think, now know the podcast format so well that they might not even need that much instruction. They just need a few reps, and, and they can get it because they, they know – they know what what they listen to as consumers, and so they know what works for them, and so I think they're able to subsequently turn around and produce that themselves. So that, those are the advantages that that the young people have. But yes, there are those uh, there are the attention span. Um, you know, there there is the, there is the instant gratification. Yeah. You know, you get that sense a lot. Like, okay, we want you know we want to be on ESPN right away. Um, it's funny. I spoke to some high school students, and someone said. You know, hey, I want to, you know, do what Stephen A. Smith does. I said, okay, do you know the route he took to get where he is? He didn't just wake up and, you know, get his own corner of ESPN. Uh, he was a Temple basketball beat writer, so they've inquired, covered the 76ers, covered the NBA. He made trips out to L.A. to do Best Damn Sports Show. Um, you know, he do Sunday morning stuff on ESPN. And, you know, it just built and grew over time, over a couple of decades. So, um you know, I, I, I tried instilling them that, okay, it's not going to come easily. It's not instant. Um, my career was quick, and that's still, you know, it was 10 years or so into my career before I was on ESPN, and that was that was fairly quick and fairly young at the time. Um, but I will say this. I mean, they see guys like Pablo, Pablo Torre, who I think got on around the horn in his 20s. Bomani might have been late 20s, early 30s probably when he started. That is pretty young. I, I was once a young guy when we started up that show. Um, I was in my early 30s. I, I think I was the only one under 40 when we started. And now, I don't know, a third or half of our panelists are under 40. So things are happening more quickly, but maybe not as quickly as, as, as they would like or expect. Yeah, I ran, into Sarah Spain. I ran into Sarah Spain in the lobby of my building today because she was going up to do Around the Horn, and, and she was coming from lunch. And uh, so I... I totally, uh, I totally get it, man. Those, those, those young whippersnapper panelists, you know, gotta, gotta keep them down. <laughs> well, funny, Sarah, you know, she told her story. She came to my class a few weeks ago and told her story. And, you know, it, it was a lot of wandering around lost in LA and on glamorous jobs, waitressing and, you know, restaurant hosting and things like that. So, you know, even if she seems like, um, you know, she came out of nowhere, no, it, it wasn't right. out of nowhere and, and it wasn't instant. I also like the, as you can describe it to a kid growing up these days, Stephen A. Smith is just a job possibility. Like, I want to do that. You know, like he created this this paradigm that you can now just live up to. So. Yeah, he's, he's his own entity, right? I mean, it's, yep. just, it's funny. I, I, look at, uh, I look at our website and the headline is, Stephen A. Smith is disappointed in the Rockets. And that's a headline. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one question I want to ask just because – it's been around so much and I, and I'm not asking to say you're going to have all the answers. Um, but look, the way that the minority versus white breakdown of media, to put it bluntly, like I was looking around, like the New York times editorial page right now has three Davids and zero women of color. And MSNBC this week hired eight new people and they're all white men. And look, you're talking to two white dudes on the phone right now. So, but how do you, as someone, 
I'm not saying you have all the answers, but in your opinion, as a as someone who has dealt with this on the practical side and now has to teach like on the theoretical side, how do you see for all the talk about an industry that says they want to do better? And then you see that the New York Times has more Davids than women of color. How do you see actual change happening and how does that relate to your teaching and how you discuss this with kids? Um, all I can try to do is, uh, you know, teach equally and, and to try to bring out the best in all my students. Um, one thing I've liked about this group of grad students at Northwestern, you know, this is kind of the first that, that offered the sports specialization and mm-hmm. it's very, very diverse group. Um, and sports is a little different than news, a little different, but Theoretically, yes, but but in practical, no. I mean, go to yeah. go to the World Series press box, go to the press room at uh, you know the Final Four. Um, you'll sign. Put it this way: it'll look a lot closer to the New York Times editorial board than it will, <laughs> um, you know, to, to the participants out there on the court. Um, true. So, Very true. I mean, one one thing is to you know, you, you, I think one thing is we we should commend and applaud the people that, that are, that are trying to make a difference. And that includes ESPN. Um, mm-hmm. you know, people are criticizing them for, you know, the SPNW or, or the undefeated. Um, but you see the studies, you know, if you took away ESPN, as bad as that diversity numbers look now, if you took away ESPN, how awful, awful would they be? Um, and, and you look at the commitment that ESPN has made, um, you know, the, the, the people that you see on air and, and the people behind the scenes, um, you know, the fact that the producer of the NBA countdown show is African-American woman, um, you know, the, you know, people that help out with, with Kari Champions show and her sports center in LA, African-American woman, um, you know, so behind the scenes as well as, as some of the quote unquote, uh, talent, the on-air personalities and, and the people you see writing, uh, on ESPN.com. So let's, let's commend those who do let's, let's put pressure and question those who don't. Um, you know, I, I think it's fair, you know, when you say, okay, here it is. You know, uh, 2017. Why does your lineup look that way? Um, you know, we we kind of had a thing with with the uh, uh, National Association of Black Journalists, the Sports Task Force. You know, we kind of called out uh, Mad Dog Radio because how did they mm-hmm. not have any African American hosts? You know, you're, you're telling me no one was qualified. You know, to fill out any part of your lineup during the day. Um, you know, but then you want to have us. You know, membership or people from our membership come on and provide you with free content as guests, but you don't think any of us are qualified to host a show. Right. Um, you know, and then they, and they did hire Stephen A. Smith, but to me that, that, that was easy. You know, like you can't find somebody else. Okay. It's easy to say, Hey, Stephen A. Smith, you know, he was proven to, you know, be an on-air talent, successful on-air talent. You didn't actually have to do a lot of research and go out of your way to find Stephen A. Smith. Can you find the next Stephen A. Smith? That that's the question I want to know. Exactly. Can you commit to that? Is it that important to you that you can find and develop and maybe take someone who's a little rough around the edges and polish them and, uh, you know, say, okay, it's important to us to have different voices. How many women do you hear on the air in sports talk radio around the country? Right. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. very few. Like here in L.A., you you might hear Ramona Shelburne. You know, she's not full time, but they use her pretty regularly on on ESPN radio in L.A. Um, But, you know, you don't hear female voices helping to you know, shape the conversation in sports 
when they are a big part of the consumers in sports, they're a big part of the fan base in sports. Um, you know, and, and then in particular, uh, they're a big part of the story, even in sports where women don't participate. Um, you know, increasingly we're seeing violence against women coming into play and, um, you know, how can you not have women around to discuss, okay, what should be the punishment? Um, how should we think of and what should be the treatment for, for these players who commit violent acts toward women? Um, you know, you, you look really stupid if you don't have a woman around uh, to give her input. And, and you know, some of these shows and some of these networks are, are being caught in that, in that situation. So um, trying to teach the next generation is my first step, um, you know, trying to trying to make sure that, I can be in position to, to recommend, you know, when people come around looking for for suggestions for who they might hire. And, you know, I'm starting to get that now. People ask, hey, you know, we've got an opening here. Who can you suggest? Um, so can I develop? Can I have people ready? Can I become yeah. aware of um, people that fit those qualifications that I can recommend? And then I can help uh, both help their careers and, and help um, help organizations that are interested in, in committing to diversity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've given us so much time. I just have a couple of really quick, quick hit questions to close. Let me start with this. Um, can you ever, can we convince you to go by the nickname, the professor and wrestle that away from that dude from the and one uh, tour? <laughs> well, it's funny, Jeff Van Gundy, we were talking, we were joking about it uh, during the game and Jeff Van Gundy says, I don't have the right to that. You know, if we're talking about a basketball context, uh, uh, he should, you know, the professor, the and one professor come first. But you know, what was cool. I was actually at the airport yesterday. And uh, the TSA guy, you know, looked at my ID and said, "Okay, prof." And uh, that was really cool, you know. So he, you know, he recognized me, but he didn't, you know, say anything about ESPN. You know, he thought of me in context as as a professor, and that was really a breakthrough moment. Wow, for me. that's the first time um, anyone has has addressed that way. I had a couple people when the news first came out, um, just like a security guard at the at the farmers market one time, said, "Hey, congratulations, you know, on the Northwestern job." Um, so I've had a couple of random things, but that was the first time, you know, a random person just saw me and thought of me as a professor. And like that, that was really cool to me because, you know, down the road, ultimately, that's what I like to be known as. You know, some people know me as a guy that's in the corner on, on, on the show that comes on at 5 Eastern. Um, but uh, to, you know, be known as, as a professor, to be recognized for the, the work that, that I'm doing in that. Uh, sphere that that'd be really cool for me. I'd be fine with that. Well, the way to get recognized is to start wearing tweed jackets with the patches on the arms. Have you have you invested? <laughs> are you pro or con that look? <laughs> I, I I'm okay with the tweed, not not the <laughs> not the patches though. I, I can't go that far. Uh, I got fine. I had I had kind of like that that tweed style jacket. I got to dig it out. <laughs> How about that? Have you ever? Did you ever consider kind of coming in first day and and you know and and you know, accepting that sort of mean Dean personification from like 1980s college movies. Could we ever see you being sort of that, <laughs> that villain on campus? That's some of my students. I think they'll think that way. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of unrelenting. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I think they would easily think, uh, um, God, who's the guy that they yelled at the animal house? Um, I'm trying to think of the name, but yeah, you can see me yelling out students' names like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, how did the Northwestern basketball and really all their athletic success compared to when you were in school, how has that fueled the excitement around the sports journalism program among your students? It helps. Um, But I I think, 
you know, they, they kind of expect that. I mean, Northwestern's been a competitive football team for a while now. Yeah. The basketball team has slowly been, been getting better. Uh, you know, they have no idea what it was like. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, these, these people coming in, I, I guess we're still at the edge where maybe, maybe not the incoming freshmen, but, you know, these people have seen the Northwestern football team go to the Rose Bowl in their lifetime. Um, you know, they've seen them in bowl games in a lifetime. Those things were ancient history when I went to Northwestern. And, of course, the basketball team had never been to the NCAA tournament. So um, it's it's great that they – and they rise to the occasion, too. You know, they produce special sections in the, in the Daily Northwestern student paper to uh, to, to capture, you know, the, the trip to the tournament or, or the bowl game, you know, bowl game previews. So um, they have so much more material to work with. Um, and um, I, I think they just kind of expect it. You know, it's not as surprising to them. Um, you know, maybe the basketball team was was different and unique, but you know, football team going to bowl game is is not earth shattering to them. It was unfathomable when I was in school. So, um, but it, it the, the thing is, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, that that's kind of been the joke is that for right. so long you had so many people in the business from Northwestern who had never had experience writing about you know success <laughs> in the major sports. It didn't stop us from going on to, to careers. But now, I mean, these students should be better off because. You know they they will have the opportunity to cover successful teams and and you know major programs, but before they get into into the professional ranks. If I'm correct in reading interviews with you, you had other you had at least one other option to come in and assume this leadership position back at Northwestern. You waited a few years, came back this year when you felt like the timing was more right. I guess to close, I would ask: Was there a certain moment or a certain time when you absolutely knew, man, I made the right decision? This was this was the right time, the right move, and 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 from that, like, where do you hope to take the program um, and, and sort of mold it in, in in your vision moving forward? I guess the best time is when you know we got the word of the layoffs last week. When we saw what happened to the industry, I thought, okay, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it might be. <laughs> professor might be more of a thing, although it is a challenge to, okay, so how, you know, what's next then? Okay. If, if the field is shrinking, then will the, the journalism school, you know, for the next to, to feel that, um, ramifications, um, where do I want to take it? Uh, again, I want to have our students prepared for this new landscape and, uh, that includes, you know, production side that, that includes, you know, kind of thinking more of the, the live event coverage, um, more so than, than, you know, the traditional coverage, the non-event coverage, um, you know, even studio shows, even, um, you know, I think there's always going to be a place for reporting, um, but how much is that going to be emphasized in the future? Um, So uh, public relations, you know, that's an aspect too. I I initially taught a PR class at USC Mm -hmm. and those, those were the graduates who were getting jobs. So can our students be prepared to compete in that area because that's where the jobs are, even though we've traditionally with journalism school, we've expanded to, to encompass, you know, all the aspects, marketing and, and all the other aspects that, that come, you know, and, and it, it originates from the same place. It originates from storytelling, right? Right. From, from, right. Uh, facts, facts and storytelling. Um, and I, I want to remain committed to um, accuracy and fairness. And I think those are uh, lost arts. I've been particularly aware of uh, tweets and how those can get out of hand and, and how, you know, failing to check on the accuracy of a tweet before you send it out. Um, even if it's a picture, mm-hmm. um, because the picture might not tell the entire story. I read a, a good story of, about someone who tweeted, he took a shot of the upper regions of that uh, Trump rally on his hundredth day in Pennsylvania. 
and there were some empty seats. And he remarked that, okay, you know, this, you know, Trump is talking about they're setting records for crowds, and here's empty seats. And then later he realized, oh man, is it possible that because of the configuration of the event where they had a lot of people on the floor, that it would have been a fire hazard? Maybe the fire marshal didn't let people in at the top <laughs> right. because you know, they'd already reached capacity in some way. Um, he double checked, and they said no, there was no capacity. So it turned out he was right. But he he wasn't 100 percent sure he was right. He had no way of knowing he was right when he sent out the tweet. There was something that went out yesterday as Sean Spicer um, looked like he was the picture made it look like he was wearing mismatched shoes and he was trying to cover up for it. He had one brown shoe and one black shoe and that he was so embarrassed or maybe, you know, he'd been so stressed with this week's events that he couldn't even put on a pair of matching shoes. Well, it turned out that that picture was from a couple months ago and that he was wearing a walking boot because he'd had a foot procedure done or something <laughs> or he'd injured his foot. So he had one brown shoe and he had a walking boot on. Um, so a very legitimate reason why you saw two different colored footwear. And it wasn't even a new picture. It was an old picture. Um, but this guy had sent it out under the guise that, you know, this was Sean Spicer today, um, confused and embarrassed and, you know, wearing two different colored shoes. That wasn't the case. So um, in the social media era, it's more important than ever to, to follow the, the basic tenets of journalism. If people want to forget those. Um, but you know, we still want to instill those and, and I'm very old school in that regard. Uh, and again, that, that might make me the mean Dean from, <laughs> from the 80s college movies, but, uh, I don't mind wearing that if, if it'll save, you know, cause I want, I want our students to fail now and not have these failures when it could cost them their jobs. Um, and I want them to learn, you know, the need for accuracy and the need for fairness um, you know, before it's something that winds up uh, curtailing their careers. To get that mean dean, you really got to practice getting shaking the fist in, into the air and like yelling one student's name. You know, like you just that's the <laughs> that's the, the student. Move. I'm trying to think from Animal House. Who's the one that the dean was always yelling at? But, it, yeah. Well, dean. I, I yeah, was it Dean Werner? Is that right? Is that the name? I, I forget. Yeah, dean Werner. Yeah. <laughs> dean Werner. Well, do, 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 <laughs> but yeah, do, I, I got to find one one student that I can just yeah yell at. <laughs> well, you know, open up the window and yell out his name and have it reverberate throughout <laughs> Chicago. Uh, well, you've been so generous with your time. We wish you nothing but the best. It's so awesome that you're, you're that you, you've taken over this post. And clearly, I mean, you know, Northwestern's got one of the best programs in the in the country, and and you're going to be, you know, spinning out so many future stars in the industry. So, congratulations. We encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. I believe it's just Jay Adande on Twitter and Instagram. Correct. That's it. All right, and uh, and and thanks again, and good luck the rest of the NBA playoffs. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Joining me now is Paul Rabel, professional lacrosse player for the New York Lizards, host of the Suiting Up podcast, and athlete entrepreneur. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, Paul and I taped a sh- uh, conversation last week, and as tends to happen with startups, there were some audio issues. So he's been kind enough to come back on the show for a few minutes because we really wanted to get him in this week. Paul, thank you for coming on Just Not Sports. Yeah, and thanks again for having me. I- I'll admit, I actually feel a little bit more nervous this time around. I felt pretty good after our last conversation. So hopefully I can hit the similar talking points that uh, that, that, that I did last time. Only you and I and uh, Sam, our editor, need to know about that last conversation. So just say whatever you want and whatever comes naturally. Um, and I'll tell everyone that like 
Yeah, we can bury the hatchet in Williamsburg over some hipster food. So there's a there's one piece of the last conversation knocked out. Yeah, um, there's really good hipster food in Williamsburg and coffee shops. So a, we got that yes. covered. I'll grow out my man bun. Um, <laughs> so, Paul, really, I think what I wanted to talk to you about, though, is what most intrigued me from our last conversation and I think is the part of this conversation that's most applicable to most of our uh, listeners' lives is um, you had some really insight, really good insights into the process of pitching. And being a startup, you are uh, in startup mode. You're constantly pitching yourself, your ideas, and things like that. So I just wanted to know, what advice do you give to people about how to pitch? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question and one that I think about fairly regularly. Um, so the, so the first analogy that I'll draw on is, is that it shouldn't be, uh, any different than the way hopefully for for at least our, our college or high school listeners on the show right now. And some of us who have graduated can draw back to our times in school. It, It should be similar to the right way we go about coursework and, and opposed to the way that most of us, and I suppose I did, uh, for studying for exams, where in school we cram for exams, uh, we wait to the last minute, and uh, we try to pull an A. Um, we know whether we did it or we were taught that uh, you have to handle the course load uh, throughout the entire semester, and if you're studying every day, if you're doing the reading materials on time, and if you're paying attention, then it makes the study and the actual exam much easier. Um, mm-hmm. With pitching, what I've heard, and I, and I think this is right, subscribing to Mark Andreessen, um, um, who's a, a, a general partner at, at Andreessen Horowitz, he says that uh, pitching or capital campaigning or capital raising has to be a 365, 24-hour-a-day experiment. You can, you can no longer... Mm-hmm just raise money when you have to raise money. Um, if you find yourself doing that, then you're not going to raise any money. Um, and so mm-hmm. that process of, of always understanding the way your business is evolving, uh, seeking your sources for capital, stoking those relationships, that's a job of a CEO or COO, uh, or in some cases mm-hmm. a CFO and, and should be managed and handled all the time. So I, I, it was long winded, but I wanted to preface it with that. Don't expect to raise money um, in this like short window when your company needs money. Um, when you get into a pitch, what we found, um, is interesting is, is, and, and pretty obvious is, is how well do you know your product, uh, and how passionate are you about it? And I'll draw on Chris Saka, who famously has passed on Airbnb and Dropbox, uh, self-admittedly, um, and, and for, for similar reasons and, and that being really fear. Um, but learning from those didn't pass on Travis, Travis Kalanick and Uber where he has mm. been able to sense this high level of passion from a founder. Um, mm. and that grit that one often possesses, that's a gut feeling that comes from experience. But I think that it's pretty obvious sitting in rooms with founders that, know their product in and out or their service and are really passionate about it. You can sense it through their body language and eye contact. So be really passionate and, 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 um, and allow that to show itself 
you use the words like grit and passion. Like those are things we usually hear around athletes. Like, do you find that background helps you in these meetings and pitches and things like that to convey those sorts of, you know, that sort of commitment that you would have as a lacrosse player or the founder of this business? Yeah. So grit um, is is how I define as is uh, and and many do as as passion meeting perseverance. And um, there are some intangibles. Um, you know, kind of going on that Travis Kalanick story and and um, you know, despite what's been in the news lately about Uber and and the founder, um, is that Saka has often talked about uh, his how multi talented he was and his competitive level. Um, that transcended not only his startup and his profession, but delved into his hobbies and how he was like a world-class Wii tennis player. Um, you mentioned the duality of athletes. Um, and I think it's really impressive when you take an athlete who is world-class on field, on court, in the pool, whatever it is that they do with their discipline, and they're able to find time, make time, and spend energy and be as successful in another category um, that type of, uh, it goes beyond, it goes beyond just being a really good time manager. It goes mm-hmm. more into, uh, the type of person that they are and their specific internal playbook of tools. And that's a lot of what mm-hmm. we uncover on the podcast when I sit down with other athlete entrepreneurs. Um, so you can look at grit as, um, as understanding who this person is beyond their, their startup experiment. Um, Going into the second part, what, what I like to look for throughout an entire pitch is the founder's vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. So what we look at specifically is uh, we're sitting in this room with you, at, uh, you know, our small venture company uh, where we make, you know, sm- write small checks um, as angels and we're self-funded and self-managed. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't likely the, the next unicorn, right? And so don't walk right. into this room and and act like, you know, you're the second coming and no one in their right mind should pass on this opportunity because the market size is X amount of billion dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I appreciate when a founder uh, acknowledges his or her blind spots um, and and is talking through um, you know, the microcosms of the, of the overall marketplace, not the vast size of it that is often unattainable. Um, so mm-hmm. acknowledging vulnerabilities is important. Uh, and then the third part for us is like understanding the competency around strategy and the tactics within that strategy. It's easy to say like, hey, this is how we're going to acquire users or we're going to sell, sell, sell. Um, it, it's, it's much more difficult and, but it should be, you should be there if you're raising money and there being like, what are your specific sales channels? How are you acquiring users? How are you spending that capital per, uh, you know, per, per category within your sales strategy inside and outside strategic partnerships, SEO, SEM, social media, like what are, how exactly do you look at that business? You need to be airtight. Um, raising mm-hmm. money is, is I think, uh, it, it, there's a level of leniency around it, unfortunately. Um, and that's the exact opposite of, of the approach or your mindset that you should have. You're taking someone else's money because they trust you and you should deliver. So the way you mentioned something earlier, I have to ask about how do you manage, like you talk about this as a Mark Andreessen, a 16 Z level 
VC and you clearly have a passion and interest in it. How do you balance the time with this running a podcast, which as we know is not nothing and being a professional lacrosse player, Yeah. by the way. Yeah, that's, it's a great question. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time and continue to do so thinking about it. I would say the only time that I manage in my life, um, is time in bed and then a designated hour every morning for self intention and personal growth. Beyond that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're looking at anywhere from a 14 to sometimes 16 hour day, which is a lot of time. And so I don't manage, I suppose, uh, the moments where I'm walking. And I guess we can say, look, look, you're having, you have calendar appointments, you have meetings and stuff. Those are scheduled. But what I really look at is my energy levels. And mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm to this point as a, you know, a dual athlete and entrepreneur, because when I am active, um, and I, I just have this like unsatiable thirst to learn. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm constantly just taking on more content and listening and reading, um, and, and, and trying to improve. Um, that is, uh, it's, that, that's a real source of energy for me and it feels endless sometimes. Um, hmm. and so I, I'm less concerned about managing actual time, um, away from, I mentioned sleep because I'm still performing and recovery is the most important thing you can do as an athlete. I, if, if, mm-hmm. if a professional athlete or college athlete were come to me and I cut it off at college because I think skill acquisition is super important prior to making it to a division one sport. But if a college and pro athlete were come to me and they say, Hey, what would you rather me work out or sleep? And I can only choose one over the other. I would say sleep. Um, and, and so, yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, that's why I mentioned that. Um, I think that would, will change slightly when I'm done playing. Um, mm-hmm. I will probably, uh, still be really important to me, but right now I'm fairly rigid in terms of getting seven to eight hours a night. Got it. All right. So you're a busy man. You've come on here twice. We'll wrap it up. You've got, you know, a lot to do. You've just established that and you have to sleep over working out. Uh, just before we go, I'd love to hear about the event you also have on your plate coming up this weekend in Boston. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, uh, we have the final four coming up this weekend, which is the biggest event every year in lacrosse. It's the equivalent of the Super Bowl for our sport. Mm-hmm. Similar to and you're a Johns Hopkins guy. Are they going to be there? No, they're not. Thanks for rubbing that in. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I am a Hopkins. I've been to their hospital once. Yeah. Um, what I, what I was saying is that, you know, with, with your mainstream sports, uh, the, the relevant kind of per NCAA revenue sports, like football, basketball, uh, MLB would be baseball, not as much a revenue sport in college, but you got the, uh, you got the picture there. Um, they've all started at some point um, where college was king and that was during their growth phase. And for us, although we have two healthy professional leagues and we have an international competition that runs every four years. And in 2018, we're, uh, we're competing again for a gold medal and that'll be in Tel Aviv and Israel. Um, Mm -hmm. college is still King. And so every year the final four is the biggest event. Uh, people travel in for all over the country 
endemic and non-endemic brands for the NCAA at least go there and activate on site in this year at Petrolette Stadium. So we'll be, uh, my entire company is going up there, we're Airbnb, and we're activating in a number of different ways. But what you've mentioned is our Friday night event with Coach mm-hmm. Belichick. It's called the Championship Chat. Heard of him, America's foremost lacrosse fan. That's right, America's foremost lacrosse fan. Really sophisticated, smart businessman. Runs his runs his team and his organization like a business. He was my first guest on my premiere episode with uh, called Suiting Up with Paul Rabel, um, the podcast that you had mentioned when you brought me on, and we're really excited about it. And um, yeah, my our first guest was Chad Brown talking about snakes. So that's a pretty decent get, Paul. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we could spend a, a, another couple of hours talking about the audio space, uh, which I'm I'm really bullish on, um, not just podcasting, but uh, how it's turning, you know, turning more towards ambient listening and um, and and the impact that Alexa and and Google Home will have on the overall retail market. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's pretty measurable. Um, but anyway, love audio, love that medium. Coach was our first guest. I've known Coach for about 12 years now through the Hopkins connection that you mentioned. He grew up in mm-hmm. Annapolis, grew up playing lacrosse, um, and we stayed in touch. And primarily, I would say it's been a one-way street where I would I would assume that I get a lot more from our relationship than he does me. But our, mm-hmm. both of our foundations are centered around helping at-risk youth through the avenue of sport and scholarship. So we use the anchor of the Final Four being back in Boston co-host a charity event. It's at the John Hancock building this Friday night. Um, and it's a two hour event. That's the 26th. So it's this week um, mm-hmm. where we'll, uh, we'll host a lot of industry uh, thought leaders in lacrosse and football. And Bill will share stories on what it takes to uh, prepare your team and your organization and ultimately win the biggest mm-hmm. game. And I'll talk about it through the lens of a player We'll take questions. Uh, Paul Carcatera, who's a well-known ESPN analyst, is emceeing it. Um, and I think ultimately it's going to be a, a highlight of the weekend. So we're really excited about it. You get tickets still. There are very few available left, but there are some at BillBelichickFoundation.org. Awesome. All right, everyone. Go get the last tickets. Go to this event. Um, trust me, I've now talked to Paul Rabel for about an hour over two separate occasions. And I have thoroughly enjoyed all these. Paul, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, enjoy the event this week. And best of luck, not just with the podcast, but with all of your, all the irons you have in the fire. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. And I'll say that uh, if, if, if you're hearing us talk for the first time, and, and while it's shorter than our last one, I'd love to come back on and talk more and, uh, and share a coffee with you or, or grab a bite, as you mentioned, in Williamsburg. For more on our, our venture portfolio, you can check out RabelVentures.com or most of my operations and, and investments are also listed um, on PaulRabel.com. It's awesome. Everybody go check it out. It's very Just Not Sports Universe. And we are back in the sports world. We know athletes, coaches, media, they talk about what they like and they get told stick to sports and that is bullshit. Be yourself. Don't don't stick to sports. The things that distract you from work make you interesting. So on this part of the show, every week we talk about the things that are distracting us from work and I'm going to start this week 
marked the beginning of Twin Peaks on Showtime, the revival of David oh, The revival yes. of David Lynch's yeah. fabled show from the early 1990s. So gents, I have a I have a I guess what I'm doing more is I haven't seen it yet. I'm just going to ask you a question about it and you guys convince me one way or the other which way to go. I have a habit. I, look, we don't have Netflix. We don't have HBO. We don't have Showtime. We don't have anything. Uh, so I watch most of my pop culture for things that, like Stranger Things or uh, The Jinx. I get most of it through podcasts and recaps and that kind of stuff. So that's the way I could go with Twin Peaks. Or my wife sometimes watches Showtime off of Friends Showtime to Go Password. So, and look, Showtime people, fine. Scream at me. HBO is cool with it. You should be cool with it. It's only like seven episodes. So like, I'm not, I'm not stealing all your content, but I'm just asking, should I wait out and try to ignore the noise in both social media and all the entertainment that I listen to and absorb and try to watch the show online at the pace that it comes out? Or should I just say, screw it? absorb everything about it. And if I get to it, I get to it, but that's going to require me kind of like borrowing the iPad and then finding time around raising my kids and doing all my work. Wait, so getting showtime is not an option. Oh, it is Adam. If you could talk to Kelly for me and just say, Hey, would you spend money on Brad watching this bullshit? She might say, no, I, f- I flew you bitches to the Peabody's. <laughs> I'm not going to pay for you to watch David Lynch. Well, you know, you know uh, that because you work in entertainment, all of your cable is tax deductible. That is correct. Adam, Adam, would you call what we do entertainment working in entertainment? Uh, I would say even your day job is considered entertainment. And let me tell you personally that it is tax deductible, my friend. Oh, damn. Adam hired a tax man. <laughs> well, you know what, guys? No, I write off. I write off my cable every year, Netflix, uh, all that stuff, and I keep HBO and Showtime. I mean, I can yep. make any argument that I need to know what is going on in media. I'd be or happy Brad, to talk I to have the Showtime. You can just come here every Sunday. I will talk to Ooh. Kelly about that as well. Friendship building, Adam. Why don't you bring an <laughs> iPad up to my place and we'll watch it at my house? Anytime, oh, yeah. buddy. You got I'll it. Tell you, I'll tell you why not, man. Because you live in the city and I live in the burbs. And if you get north of Irving Park, if you stepped over it, you would like turn into an old man like that scene in Field of Dreams. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I want no part of that. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I'm probably going to recap it and pot it. I, I'm excited for it. I'm not sure it's going to actually work the way people want to. I think Twin Peaks was a... a, a a cultural phenomenon because it was unlike anything on television, but also I'm not quite sure if it, if it's going to work again, but I'm excited that it's here and I'm glad that interesting television exists. So that is my distraction. Uh, Joe Reed, I'm gonna go to you, buddy. You're back. You're in Seattle. What is distracting you, my friend? Oh, dang. So mine's kind of a sad note, but, um, you guys are obviously know this and our listeners probably do, but uh, Chris Cornell passed away last week. And um, I was never a huge uh, Soundgarden or Audioslave fan, um, but in recently moving to Seattle where Chris Cornell is from and hearing sort of his name thrown around and uh, KEXP, the local radio station, had a memorial service for him and um, 
he was just kind of his 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 voice and his presence was was sort of everywhere in the the days afterwards. So I've just been listening to a lot of um, Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, and um, I recently listened to a, a podcast, a very interesting podcast, where um, uh, on that podcast WTF, where uh, Mark Maron interviewed Chris Cornell back in two thousand and four or two thousand fourteen. I forget which one it is. One of those two. That's a big difference, but. Um, I've just been consuming Chris Cornell, uh, in all the ways that I can. And it's makes me sad that it took him, um, passing away for me to appreciate, um, his artistry and his voice. And, uh, so yeah, it it just makes me want to get out there and discover more things that, um, you know, before, before they're gone. Anyways, that's why I'm, that's what I've been distracted with this week. Nice, man. Yeah. Like Chris Cornell, he he and Soundgarden had a funny place that I find really interesting. Like, I was tweeting after he died. Like, his music was always there, but I was it was never my favorite. At the same time, and Brad, I thought of you, and when I wrote this, like the people who liked him loved him, and I still remember lunch my senior year in high school. Our senior year in high school, Brad, I think you were there, where we were all sitting around the table. And Soundgarden had broken up, and our buddy Mike Ormiston was just distraught. And I'll never forget like that lunch where it was like, "So Ormo, you doing okay, dude?" And he was just kind of like, "Yeah, it's okay, man. I, th- you know, I think they'll be happier this way." And it was like, and not to say that somebody died, but like that was a that was a lunch I've rem- remembered to this day because like we had to sort out his feelings about Soundgarden breaking up. And they, to the people that he did connect with like that, he really seemed to inspire. He he treaded a weird line between like super famous and cult figure that I think is really hard to do. So I also saw him once in LAX with his family and he looked so pissed and bedraggled to be there. And after that, after that, I was like, yeah, he's an all right guy, man, because walking through LAX with your family sucks. So. <laughs> so guys, I'm not this is not a shot at Chris Cornell. I'm 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 bringing this up as purely intellectual, okay? I did not think of Chris Cornell as as a culturally important figure of music in that time. And in fact, if you made me power rank the voices of that generation, I would put Cobain, Eddie Vedder, Billy Corgan, Perry Farrell, like a number of voices ahead of them for their cultural impact beyond the music. And I also don't know that Soundgarden's music has had, has endured. Look, everyone loves Black Hole Sun. They love Spoonman. They love the, the, the work that he did. I'm not shitting on the work that they did. Any more than someone who voted Derek Jeter third in MVP balloting the year that Joe Maurer won was not shitting on Derek Jeter. But I, I, I wonder how much of this is nostalgia for that era versus that's being applied to Chris Cornell because he won. Because I had a lot of people ask me when Lane Staley died, because I was a big Alice in Chains fan. They're like, oh, my God, how are you doing with this? And I was like, I'm cool. <laughs> like, I have not listened to a song by Alice in Chains that wasn't, you know, like uh, Junkhead or Rooster in 25 years. So do we do is this just over? nostalgia? Are we now at that point with our where our parents were at when? The, the stars of the 50s and 60s were dying and we're just like 
gonna do this every time anyone dies and be like they were culturally well, important? Oh, well, I'm asking. Look, I'm not, I'm not shitting. I'm, I'm, I'm asking. No, 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 I'm no, just no. asking I the question. I think it's a fair question. I think it's more more than no. He, he did not have the cultural impact that Kurt Cobain had. However, he was very very closely associated with that movement. And when you look at the tragic way he died, it is a a bookend to the moment that we all remember with Kurt Cobain, which I right. did think I do think shook the nation. I think so. It's probably not so much the impact that he had on music, but that kind of that tragic, like this is a guy who seemed to have it all together. Clearly there was a darkness there, but he seemed to be managing that darkness, but he wasn't. Um, so I know we talk about mental health on this show a lot. I think it's, a lot of us dealing with our own mortality um, and the thoughts of uh, a guy in his early 50s who seemed to have things figured out taking his life. And it transports you back to that moment when you were a teenager, when Kurt Cobain died. And I think that's what people are really mourning. Yeah. And that's totally fair. Like I said, I'm not shitting on his legacy. I just no, whenever no, not at all. I, I, I also worked in media. And so I'm very much aware of like our obituary news cycle, which is someone dies and then it's this rush to apply meaning to the death. And in this case, it was it, I think it was like, hey, cool. I don't mind letting this one breathe a little bit and getting a little bit more perspective about where, you know, what his death means for him personally, as you said, Adam, very eloquently. And what his death meant broadly, bro- more broadly speaking about the culture of the nineties and, and what we, what we're doing there. I also think right now we're in a period where a lot of people our age who are more progressive are longing for a time like the nineties, which felt like a, the start of a progressive movement. Um, and that th- this, this fuels that too. I think there's a desire to, uh, that these voices like, uh, leaving is just a sad time for a lot of those folks. So, uh, like, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm not shitting on them. Joe, if you want to cut this out, you can, uh, I, I'm a big Chris Cornell fan. I just, I was gone out of the country and I came back and it was like, oh wow, everyone's talking about Chris Cornell. And I was kind of like, well, I, why don't I hear them talking about Chris Cornell, you know, two years ago, like just, just talking about his music. Like I, I also think we don't do a great job in this country of just like holding our attention span onto things and, and continuing to keep people top of mind until they just do something that makes us flood the zone with like all this thought, thought leadership about what they meant. And it's like, well, I mean, where's this been for 10 years? You know, like we could be, I'd, I'd talk to you about Soundgarden tomorrow or, you know, like let's do it. Yeah. Hey, no, I, I think it, on, I think it on, raises, I, I think it raises, I, I, Brad, I think I respect your question and I think it was beyond asking about Chris Cornell specifically, because we sure do idolize. Uh, and, and one, I think it's a fear of us all wanting to be remembered uh, fondly, no matter uh, what we do in our life that we all hope that when we're when we pass that uh, some great tribute is had and uh, as long as people recognize that I want a motherfucking Peabody I'm good <laughs> I think I think to Adam's point also I think it's you know even before we found out that you know the way he died I think it's the there's something strange in sort of the social age of like that he can be performing, you know, live on a Monday night in Detroit and tweeting out. And then the next morning, you know, he's found dead in his hotel room. I think just the circumstances that surrounded it were unusual. I also think I had probably a different experience of it from you guys being in his hometown 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. People in the people in the office and um you know, you could, you know, you could just kind of feel it around and all the radio stations are, you know, 6 degrees of Chris Cornell and um so it, it was just yeah, but Brad, you I you're I am not faulting you for asking the question because it's I think it's a good one. All right. Uh I'm proposing a new segment on Just on Sports. Not going to be for every week. But periodically, like if we're looking for a second segment or something like that, we're going to start doing Before They Die, where we appreciate someone's contribution, art, what have you, while they're still alive. This makes me think two things. One, this is a great idea. And two, it's going to be really weird when we choose somebody and then like two days after we release our podcast, (laughs) just by the sheer happenstance of it, they die. Uh, and then we have to deal with that on the next week's episode. Yeah, but the curse like of just sports Garrett. will be born. Yeah, I was going to so. go for a straight up death pool that we just figure out. Yeah, which which, which <laughs> pop culture sports figure is going to die next? This was tough because, like in nineteen in the late nineties, I I invented podcasting, and my first guest invite was Princess Die. Just don't get me started. On. <laughs> oh my gosh! Too soon? Too soon? Oh. All right, Adam Garrett. Adam Garrett, you guys are left. Uh, we'll start with we'll start with Adam. Uh, I was going to go music, but I'll save it for next time, and I'll go documentary instead. On Netflix, there is a tremendous documentary called The 7-5. So it's about the 75th Precinct in New York and police corruption, and specifically about two cops. Uh, It was just, it it was a really interesting look at the path of corruption uh, in general, but specifically uh, in New York in the late 80s and early 90s where uh, cocaine and crack was clearly an epidemic and um, the story follows a cop who at, uh, at first he kind of dips his hand into the honeypot so to speak and when he'd catch a drug dealer and found cash he might take a couple peel off a couple grand um, and about 20 minutes into the documentary he's talking about how he's full on working employed by a drug dealer um, making sure that the drug dealer doesn't get caught doing coke uh, out of his cop car and selling drugs himself. So it was an interesting, um, very interesting documentary and enthralling. Like uh, my, my, I watched it with my mother on Mother's Day and uh, she, she was, uh, we, were, we were both pretty riveted the whole time. So again, um, the documentary is called The 7-5. You can check it out on Netflix. Nice. Gareth, distract us. All right, mine is music, so I'm glad uh, Adam went documentary. This is an album that I'm going to recommend that actually I saw Bethlehem Shoals on uh, on Twitter talking about last week, and it made me really excited. So the album is called Standing on the Corner. That's the album, the artist, everything. If you go to standingonthecorner.com, can download it it's on soundcloud if you're in new york you can buy an album at good records uh johnny over at good records released it um the album is made by a kid who works behind the counter at the record store geo and basically geo is a 21 year old kid <clears throat> i met him working at the record store 
And he was like, yeah, I was just kind of working on this album. I wrote a lot of these songs. I recorded like a full band version. He's like, I didn't really like it. I didn't know what I was doing. It just didn't sound right. It sounded like too much. And so he went back into his, basically into his room and re-recorded this whole album of like basically just stone soul uh, with a bunch of tape loops and keyboards and fucked up vocals and samples. And man, he made a minor masterpiece. It is weird. It is beautiful. It is a great listen for the summertime. Things are moving slow because it's hot out. Uh, the track Girl, BNS, all good. And it's just cool to watch a 21-year-old just kind of, or like a kid who just graduated from NYU last week, like kind of just, oh, yeah, by the way, I think I might be a creative genius. Look at what I made in my bedroom. And this is the one we weekend. listened to at your apartment on Saturday, yes, right? You're, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah, obsessed it was, with it. I mean, it's, that's not my, uh, it's not my jam, so to speak, but it was, it was outstanding. It was a lazy Saturday afternoon album, and I really enjoyed it as well. Amen. So, standing on the corner, standing on the corner dot com. Enjoy. You can download it for free. So that's the, you know, nothing ventured there. So give it a shot. And fans of my musical taste of this show, just uh, tune all that stuff out and download some uh, <laughs> some new Ed Sheeran when you when you have a chance. Uh, okay. Perhaps a kid, perhaps a kids bop remix of one of your favorite. Oh my pop god, songs. I would love it. I would love it. Let's give some shout outs and close out the week. Let's give a shout out to J. A. Adande and the PR staff of Northwestern University, one of America's finest. Chicago slash Evanston, born and bred. Uh, J.A. doing great work with the university. We wish him nothing but the best of luck. And also, Paul Rabel, uh, hope that podcast takes off. Give it a listen. Uh, Gareth, what's the podcast called again? Uh, Suiting up Matt Hasselbeck was his uh, guest this week. They talked about how Matt was the first athlete to actually join Twitter. So Wow. And then uh, Bill, Bill Belichick was his first episode, right? I, if he did, I missed that. Uh, I, I know he and Bill were doing an event this week. That's how we ended up talking to each other. So America's foremost lacrosse fan. Awesome. Awesome. And then uh, Adam, any shout outs for us, man? Uh, yeah, I would like to give a shout out to Johnny from Idaho. Johnny listening to the uh, Just Not Sports podcast while driving his truck. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I gave out my phone number. One person <laughs> has used it so far. Johnny from Idaho says if he's ever in Chicago, he'd love to get together for a beer. So uh, appreciate you listening, Johnny. Uh, keep on trucking, buddy. And we are going to be sending you a T-shirt. Yes, I still have T-shirts left. So uh, we will be sending that. We'll be getting one in the mail to you pretty soon, John. Thanks a lot for listening. Awesome. How about your family? Uh, should we finish with a few more shout Yeah, first of all, Johnny, thanks for listening, and thank you for contacting Adam and not uh, uh, calling my cell phone in the middle of the night. Uh, <laughs> and uh, no, but seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening, and we'll get you that T-shirt. Also, Adam, I could use a large, men's large. Uh, uh, I lost mine. And uh, yeah, what about the fam, bro? All right. All right, man. Uh, well, let's... Uh I want to talk to to my fam. Uh, shout out to my boy Uzi and uh, and Def Jeff. 
and Little Swanee, not not to be confused with Big Swanee, uh, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. Shout out, boys. Nice. And in the immortal words of America's greatest poet, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Come together right now.